0: Hello, friends. Welcome to the Laity Podcast. This is Andrew. I'm here with Stephen. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. And uh, we are really excited to have, I guess, our second international guest, um, Bruxy Cavey, joining us from uh, Hamilton, Ontario. Bruxy, how's it going?
1: It's going well. International guest. I feel special. That sounds exotic.
0: Yeah. Well, when when I think exotic, I think Canada, and I would think our uh, our <laughs> listeners our <laughs> listeners agree <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> on your budget. That's exotic.
0: Yes, exactly. Oh, that's right. That's exactly right. Ben, really, really grateful to to have you on Broxy. And for those who don't know, um, Broxy, he is the senior pastor at the Meeting House, um, which is a multi site Anabaptist congregation up in uh, Ontario, Canada. And uh, he's also the author of a couple of books, uh, most recently uh, Reunion, uh, as well as uh, another called The End of Religion. Um, And man, we're, we're excited to have Bruxy on, someone that I've only recently, to be totally honest, kind of learned of, and my eyes have been open to, and from your teaching to your blog, um, some of the podcasts that you've done with guests I've listened to, it's really, it's encouraged my faith. And uh, I'm just, I'm grateful for the time here and, and to meet you. So again, thank you so
1: much for being on. Oh, this is wonderful. Both Stephen and Andrew, thanks for arranging this. I feel like I'm meeting some long lost family, so we got a lot of catching up to do.
0: I love that. Do you mind giving Bruxy, uh, our listeners, maybe a little bit of a, of an intro? Um, just even how, you know, I mentioned the meeting house. I, I probably mm-hmm. did, did the intro, uh, didn't do you full justice, but even in do, introducing yourself and then how you, how you landed, uh, at your, in your role today in that church.
1: Okay. Sure. Happy to, it's going to feel like a bad first date where all I do is talk about myself for the first few minutes, but here we go. Oh, we love that. <laughs> so I, um, I was raised in a Christian home, evangelical background, Pentecostal growing up, and then uh, I became a Baptist pastor for five years, and the conservative kind of Baptist. There's all kinds of Baptists. I was the John MacArthur kind of Baptist, and, oh. um, and so I, I always felt like I didn't quite fit in growing up. I was a little too maybe skeptical and Baptistic when I was a Pentecostal, and I was a little too Pentecostal when I was a Baptist. And I think I always felt wherever I was, I didn't quite fit in, but I figured that's just what it feels like being a Christian this side of heaven. We never quite fit anywhere, and that's okay. So I. I wasn't really searching. I was just happy to bloom where I was planted. And I always believe in being as committed as you can be wherever you are. And if you can't be committed there, then you're in the wrong place. But find some place where your head and your heart can say, I am all in, or find another place. And so I, I decided I'm going to be all in wherever I am. And that's how I was as a Pentecostal. But I remember having some friends, I was never charismatic enough. I'd have friends say, you know, can't you just sense the Holy Spirit? And I think to myself, I think the air conditioning just kicked in. So I don't <laughs> know, man. You know, and I we went on a missions trip and we got off the plane and someone said, ooh, I can sense the spiritual oppression in this country. And I said, that's called humidity. You know, it's <laughs> not really. So I don't know. I... I I just felt that I wasn't wired to be a good Pentecostal and yet I'm really grateful for my Pentecostal roots. It gave me kind of a passion and excitement and appreciation of expressive worship. So there's a lot of good I brought from that. And as a Baptist though, I felt maybe, yeah, too, that I wasn't quite fitting in. So when, when, Uh, The group I'm with now, the Anabaptists, I I don't know if I fell asleep during that class in history, uh, church history and seminary, but I didn't know much about Anabaptists except I knew who Mennonites and Amish were. But um, I didn't know that there was this kind of thriving movement that kind of rose up about the same time as the Protestant Reformation that were basically the students. They were the 20-something students of the Protestant Reformers who were accusing their teachers of not going far enough with the revolution. So the Protestant reformers were saying, get the Bible back into people's hands. Let's follow the Bible, sola scriptura. But it was their students who were saying, all right, thank you. We're studying the Bible and we're finding Jesus at the center of it all. And you're getting us, you're helping us fall in love with the Bible, but we want to challenge you to actually follow Jesus. So Protestants were uh, moving away from some of the Catholic abuses, but they were being just as violent, for instance, as Catholic countries. So um, they were they were killing Catholics as much as Catholics were killing Protestants. And so Anabaptists were those ones who said, hold on a second, if we're really gonna read the Bible and do what it says, shouldn't we let it lead us to Jesus? And if we're gonna follow Jesus, should we really be killing uh, fellow Christians? Or even if we believe they're heretics, should we be killing anybody in the name of the love of Jesus? This can't be our our Christianity. And they were also the ones who said um, faith should be a personal choice rather than something you're born into. Because, you know, if at that time, if you were born in France, you were Catholic. If you're born in Germany, you're Protestant. And your infant baptism symbolized that. And so Anabaptists protested that and said, no, faith should be a personal choice. And therefore, they championed believers' baptism on mass, which was the first time this had happened for hundreds of years in church history. And so they were roundly persecuted. And being pacifists, they were sitting ducks. So... Anabaptists were killed by the tens of thousands by both Catholics and Protestants mm. but they they really fell in love with Jesus and um, I fell in love with the Anabaptist tradition when I first heard about it and found out um, this has been around for hundreds of years and I just didn't realize it so when I finally came to the church I'm at now called The Meeting House, I had a where have you been all my life experience. It was, it felt like I, I found the people of my tribe where I could really fit and flourish and be excited about my faith. Hmm. And how awesome. long How long have you been there now? I've been there over 20 years. And um, it was, yeah, it was a really, it, I, I mean, they hired me to be the pastor, but I feel like I'm the one who has been learning the most from this small branch of the Christian family tree. Got it. And, and how,
0: when you think about kind of the Anabaptist landscape more broadly, kind of educate us, what does that look like, you know, even in Canada versus what you observe in the States, uh, just in terms of uh, concentration and, and, you know,
1: number of folks in the, in the stream? Hmm. Well, we're, we have just less of everything, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> Except for landmass, we have more landmass, <laughs> and we're just far more spread out. So we um, really, I think, a, a shorthand for understanding Canadian culture for my American friends is to say that we are somewhere between American culture and British culture. We are. We've got some European flavor, a more secular. Bent that is much more European than American culture. Yet we have a lot in common with American culture as well, and so we we get you. We understand. We watch the same news and track with the same stories, and um, and so we're we have our we have our eyes on America. I mean, we we sleep beside you, and you could roll over in bed and squash us. So we we keep our eyes open, and and it's really we find it fascinating, kind of the state of the church in America. But I mean, Canada's got its own issues too. Um, we're just smaller and and uh, don't don't get as much attention. Can,
0: can you expound what? on that? Sorry, Stephen, yeah, if you, I don't I, know if you're going to mm-hmm. ask a similar question, but in, when you say you're kind of, what are the kind of what's the Canadian perspective on uh, the <laughs> church in America? And more specifically, I mean your your perspective.
1: Oh, okay. You guys are pooched. No, just kidding. <laughs> uh, you know, I think that a, a denomination or a nation often its weaknesses are just its strengths out of control. And there is a lot of good I see in both the American church and in America as a nation. There is just so much good there that I don't want to just skip past. It seems very in vogue to only criticize, uh, regardless whether you're conservative or progressive, to to just say the other side is winning and state of affairs is terrible. But Uh I think there's something beautiful and wonderful as well, of course, as um, as as destructive and racist and all those other things. All of that is like mixed up together in the story of America. But at, at rock bottom, it is a, a, uh, a country that is rooted in rebellion, where at the very beginning, of course, its rightful leaders were rejected. Um, and I'm talking about, yes, the white story of America. We all can also could also be talking about uh, the... Um, the invasion of indigenous nations. But even that aside, if you're just talking about the story of the people who um, thought they were the first, quote, Americans who came over from Europe, you have uh, you have the story of a group of people who said, we are not going to be governed by the king who sent us here, and we're not going to pay taxes. And, and yeah, maybe he was a jerk or a bad king, but Bible doesn't say you get to pick and choose when you're going to obey and when you're not going to submit. And so they just said, no way, Boston Tea Party, we're out of here. We're going to fight against them. So it, it is a, there's a pride um, that and a rebellion at the heart of the American story. I mean, if Hawaii decided to say, that's it, we don't want to pay taxes to that landmass way over there. We're doing our own thing. America proper would say, hey, who are you that you get to be so rebellious and think you can do that? But that's what early America was doing to England. And so within that and, that, and Canada has that in our DNA as well. There is this sense of not only dominance of the pre-existing nations that were here, but it's rebellious, it's rebel, re, re, rebellion against the nation that we were coming from. So so there is this protesting and this criticizing and this we know better than you that's kind of rooted into American DNA that... Twitter just makes worse. And <laughs> to come full circle to today, it's like now you have social media, which is really just exacerbating an issue that's been there all the time. Yeah. Um, but now it can be immediate. Now it's right there in front of all of our eyes all the time. And um, and it, it can be really hurtful, harmful. And the challenge uh, is that the Christian faith should be the the way that moves into this and teaches us something different and says there's a different kingdom we should belong to, a different way of living, where our we're ambassadors to this thing called America or to this thing called Canada. We're not Americans. We're not Canadians first, and and we're going to show you. We're going to be outposts of a whole different way of living. But instead, it seems as though American Christianity and Canadian, in many ways, has bought into more of the cultural ethos, and um and that's that's sad.
2: Does um. Wow. That, that, that's, a, that's a helpful perspective. Yeah. On your side of the, I don't know, fence or lack thereof, do you have, do you guys, do you find, you, like, the younger people who are growing up in church, do you have the same phenomenon happening that's happening here, where uh, a lot of younger folks, millennials, whatever, are, um, that, that are particularly coming from conservative, maybe evangelical, or religious contexts, uh, they go off to college. They're exposed to all these different ideas, and then everything kind of deconstructs. spirals out, and pretty soon they don't want anything to do with church or, or um, what, what's the term they use for those? Like, like the nuns. Are you, are you familiar mm-hmm. with that term? The mm-hmm. nuns. Yeah, the same thing
1: happening there. Oh yeah, absolutely. In fact, Canada's probably a, a decade or two ahead of America for that phenomenon. Where, again, we're moving more in a European direction at a faster pace. So. Um, so uh, there's a kind of a now a a settled peace in canada but it's more of a secular settled peace that says anyone can believe whatever they want and that's okay and we're going to learn to get along together uh, but the, the at root of that is almost the sense that none of it is really true so let's just give everyone their mythology and and learn to get along together as long as their mythology contributes to the greater good of society and um, and so there is almost this a secular uh, inoculation to to taking any belief system that seriously, which can make evangelism and even just robust conversation about spiritual things difficult because, um, because sometimes there's not even enough pushback to have a conversation. There's just a polite pat on the head that says, that's nice. What you believe is really nice and what I believe is really nice and we're just going to be nice. So um, it's almost like one-sided Velcro. Uh, it, it just doesn't stick. Uh-huh. You know, you, there's nothing to stick to. And, and that is often, I think, for Canada, one of our challenges when it comes to evangelism or even just um, having good conversations spiritually is that um, people don't want to press into that to any degree. Mm. It's, it's like collective agreeable, agreeable patronization. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Did, did, um, um, from where I sit, I mean, it seems like uh, at least in, in, in broader evangelical culture, the way that uh, evangelical church sort of sees itself uh, or locates itself in a pluralistic society uh, is sort of in, inherently in conflict. Like it's like the, there's like there's a there's a battlefield of ideas mm-hmm. and, and they're out there to to win. Um, now I, I'm 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 painting with a broad brush. Of course, there's many many great fantastic things going on in, in the in the evangelical church, but sometimes I do sort of sense that there is this uh, um, um, almost like what you described, uh, like like that the, the, there's this, this conflict at the center, like uh, like we we have to we have to win something. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, am I making sense? I, am, yes. Am I, I, okay. So okay. Do you, is is the posture of the, of the Canadian church similar? I mean, since you guys have been in it for so much longer and you're sort of, for, I guess, further down what seems to be the same trajectory that we're on, uh, is the posture of the church any different? I mean, have you guys adopted a different way
1: to be in a pluralistic society than that? Uh, well, maybe we've just had a little more practice, but that means we've also failed, had more opportunities to fail as well. The It seems as though what we are lacking, and when I say we, I mean the church in North America, what we are lacking are good examples of people who know how to talk with conviction, but also with gentleness and respect. People who are able to say, I really believe this enough that I want you to believe it too. And if you would be willing to engage with me in conversation, I do want to convince you and you can try and convince me. And we're going to do this in a way that's mutually respectful and healthy. And both of us are going to come away enriched because of it. That kind of a conversation, both the eagerness to talk to, pe- talk to people about Jesus, but also the eagerness to learn from them and to respect them and to care about them and to to uh, to radiate that from the beginning. Uh, there aren't a lot of great examples. So you have the people who have a passion for evangelism, and they often just leave a bad taste in everybody's mouth, other Christians and certainly non-Christians. And then you have those who would be more sensitive to caring for for um, how we come across, just saying, if that's what evangelism is, I'm out, I tap out, I give up. Yes. I, it seems as though evangelism itself must be inherently an abusive thing to do. And so I'm going to back away from it. And, um, and so we need models to teach us how to re-engage evangelistically in a way that's mute. That's something that a Christian and a non-Christian should come away from and say, I really enjoyed that. I learned something that was good.
0: That's fascinating. Yeah. I want to get back to the evangelism conversation, um, but want to frame it a little bit, if it works, uh, within the context of of this, of kingdom, you know, call it kingdom language <laughs> or, or a kingdom framework. And our listeners uh, know we've been, you know, a couple episodes, a few episodes into this uh, little series on kingdom, getting a lot of great perspectives. And we've talked about everything from sort of, you know, first century context to, you know, radical hospitality um, to, you know, what it means for Jesus to be king and what you know, what, what the kingdom even even means and what, what we mean by that language. Um, so within, I, w- I want to talk about that in a moment and then want to hit a couple of, you know, totally non-big deal, not big topics like gospel and atonement and evangelism and a lot of this, uh, <laughs> this stuff that, you know, we're all fascinated with uh, and, and want to talk about. But just queuing up kind of the kingdom, this kingdom language and to keep in, in step with what we've been talking about, Bruxy, I've heard a, a number of your sermons and, and you know, read a, a bit of your work on the subject, and so uh, I really appreciate a lot of the language you've used and the framing you've done, even at the meeting house. When, when you, when you, in your context, when you're introducing folks to this idea uh, of the kingdom of God, particularly for those of us who grew up in church, and frankly, that that language either in our tradition referred to kind of like our, within the walls of our church, uh, we are this hmm. kingdom, um, or it was sort of just a distant kind of throwaway thing that's actually the center of of Jesus's message. How do you go about even introducing folks
1: to to the kingdom? Sure. Well, certainly the concept's more important than the word. And we're dealing with an English word that's a translation of a Greek, which would be a translation of the Aramaic that Jesus was teaching, which I love, by the way, that the gospels are already, even in what we would call the original language, already not the original language. (laughs) (laughs) That's so great. You know, it's as though Jesus is protecting us from the beginning of becoming word legalists or becoming uh, idolaters of the words themselves. Even the original... Transcripts or the original writings of the teaching of Jesus are already a translation into a new language. And so the original disciples made the decision it's more important to get the message out there than it is to preserve the original utterances in the original language. That's huge. Mm. So they cared about getting the message out there. The Gospels are already a translation. So I I think whatever translation of this Bible you use, whatever language you're talking in, the overall message is more important than being a word legalist. Uh, It's got to be a message that can translate well and be communicated well, that even a child can understand it. So when I talk about the kingdom, I think that is a fascinating word that says there's a new way of living, and it's going to be a way that's united by one will, by one one way of living there's a new way of living rallied around one will and one way and so the kingdom has a king and the kingdom has a culture the king is the one will and the culture is the one way and i could say that jesus came to invite us into a whole new way of living in relationship with god and each other God's the king, each other, we help live out in the culture of the society. So so there's all these ways I could talk about it without necessarily using the word kingdom. By the time we're talking I can use the word kingdom, I'm I've already given it a context or a framework. Jesus was calling people to come and live in a new way in line with a new will. And so the will of God and the king and his leadership becomes uh, this beautiful focal point, rallying point for giving our lives purpose and meaning. But it's also the fact that we're not just individually invited into a connection with God through Jesus, but we're invited into, and kingdom speaks of this, we're invited into a new society of friends, a new um, a new citizenry where we are part of something larger than ourselves that really gives our life purpose and meaning and value and and the culture. The kingdom culture is marked by values that would be found in the fruit of the spirit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness and gentleness and self-control. I mean, there's just beautiful qualities there that should describe the culture of this new society. And so we're invited to be citizens or participants in this new way of living. And then we're also invited to be ambassadors on behalf of this new way of living so that I see myself not primarily as a Canadian, but as someone who's part of this new spiritual identity that is multinational, multi-ethnic, stretches around the world and backward through time. And I get to be part of this. And Jesus at the center becomes the focus point so we don't get off track. He keeps reminding us how beautiful God is and how important we are, and how how much God loves us, and and how we can be called to love one another with that same sacrificial love. Because a, a broad kingdom like that needs a focal point, and Jesus is the, the king, so to speak. He's our focal point for this new way of living.
0: Hmm. Thank you. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Um, so this idea of gospel or, or good news, <laughs> um, you know, Jesus puts it hand in hand with the you know the king this proclamation of the kingdom in the beginning of you know mark for example you know the, mm-hmm. the kingdom of god is a hand come and uh, repent and 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 believe the good news but for many of us this idea of gospel or good news didn't uh, didn't necessarily sit well with this idea of kingdom because it wasn't necessarily the gospel message seemed, I wouldn't have used this language at the time, but very much transactional. Mm-hmm. And versus this kingdom language, which sounds much more broad and almost idealistic and sort of almost something at arm's length that I can't quite get my hands on unlike mm. for example, you know uh, a sinner's prayer or a you know a, a Bible study and a baptism or a moment in time where something takes place and I sort of believe the gospel and, and have this conversion moment. I, I set all mm. that up to say how do, how do you frame the good news or the message of the gospel um, and, and it, within that you know proclamation of the kingdom that, that Jesus mm. makes?
1: Yeah. Well, I guess I, I want to invite people um, to know that Jesus has made a difference in my life. That there is, and and there is a person, a, a whether you call him Master, Lord, or or a spiritual guru, or even just a a really smart guy, or a or a good ethical teacher. However you approach Jesus, I am happy to meet people where they're at and then allowed Jesus to mentor them and seeing that he's much more than any of the things that they first thought he was. But Jesus never rebuked anyone who approached him and called him rabbi or teacher, He never said, how dare you approach me as teacher? Do you not know that I am the Lord of the universe? And he responded to their questions as though he was a teacher or he was a rabbi because he was. He's not, it's not that he's not our teacher. He's just much more than that. But I don't have to approach this by saying, God has come to earth in the form of Christ and you must make him Lord of your life. I can say, approach him as a teacher and ask him all the questions you have and see what the answers are that he gives. And it's my firm conviction that, One of the greatest evidential miracles that Jesus performed is not just healing the sick or even raising the dead. His teachings themselves bear the marks of the miraculous. The teachings of Jesus are perfectly tailored to fit with the needs of the human heart. The very things we know we need and are searching for are the very things Jesus addresses in his teaching. So even if someone just starts with Jesus as a teacher, they're starting at a place that will allow them to be introduced to the supernatural nature of who Jesus is. I mean, for instance, he he, he teaches uh, uh, the the central, central need of forgiveness, both to receive forgiveness, but also to offer forgiveness. And 2,000 years later, psychologists have caught up to this central need of forgiveness. We must overcome a sense of shame we often grow up with by accepting forgiveness ourselves. But we need to offer forgiveness also, or we are going to begin to implode with kind of the acid and corrosion of bitterness. And that's being dealt with on a psychological level. Jesus was uniquely positioned to say the human psyche needs this to receive it and to offer this in a way no other ancient teacher was. And and we can walk through all the different aspects of the gospel and see how his teachings meets our need perfectly. So I just want to invite people to have a dialogue about what who Jesus was or even just what he taught. And then I think they're going to learn who he actually is when they see the power of his teaching.
2: I think a lot of times. Well, so the, the other day, my wife and I were sitting down at the couch, and we were trying to we were trying to to, to think back of all of our friends. How many of them are sort of either now in the nuns camp or hmm. are on the way to the nuns camp, even if they don't know it yet? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and we pretty quickly we got to thirty, and and these are like hmm. like these aren't like like six degrees of separation. These are like one or two. Right, hmm. we're, we're good friends, and and one of the things that I find is is common a common thread is the idea of the good news being uh, God, God created you and He loves you, but then you sinned and now you're separated from Him, and He's made a way for you to receive forgiveness and now have a relationship. Um, for a gospel uh, that is that is packaged entirely as that. Hmm. It just starts to feel insufficient. It starts to feel like, but mm. wait a minute! Like, what about the fact that we're literally destroying the planet on which my grandkids are supposed to live? And what about mm. the fact that 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 the police, the ones who are supposed to be keeping peace, are sometimes the, the perpetrators of violence? And and mm. how do we? Uh, it just starts to feel like an individual spiritual good news isn't actually all that good news for the world. And yes. so they they would rather just opt out.
1: Yeah, right on. And that is because the gospel has been preached by evangelical Christianity traditionally as an individual message for you to individually repent and find forgiveness for your individual sins. So you, as an individual, will get your ticket into heaven and individually will be able to avoid hell. Whereas the gospel from the beginning, starting as the gospel of the kingdom, starts with the plurality of the message that. There is a movement happening. There is something large, a new way of living in relationship with God and one another and with creation. There is something big. And then after preaching the largeness of the gospel of the kingdom, it comes down to the individual saying, do you want in? Do you want into this? It's a come and join us. Come and join us. There's something big here. Whereas uh, evangelical Christianity has typically started with the individual there's, it has implications for you, and and then eventually you may realize there's a bigger movement you can be a part of, and um, I think Jesus preached it from a different direction. I think both aspects are true, but the largeness of the message and the new wayness of living, in partnership with brothers and sisters in this family that transcends the eth- the ethnic divide and the national divide, um, is so. Early on in the preaching of the gospel, both we know in the teaching of Jesus that he approached the gospel as a good news message of a new way of living called the kingdom. But also in the teaching of Paul, Ephesians 2, when he says that Jesus died to break down the dividing wall that was separating people so there could be one new humanity, one new whole person of of races and groups of people that were severely divided at that time, that this was the vision of Jesus, that he was creating what we could say would be a sociological miracle from the very beginning. And that was one of the great evidences that Jesus was doing something beautiful and special, was here and now on the planet, you could see people getting along and then joining arms to accomplish good things together that had never been seen before in the history of humanity. Uh, That... That has a, a real, I think, attractional pull to people who are on the outside looking in saying, what is what is this doing? What is this message doing or offering that's good for the planet or good for my kids who are going to grow up and good for me now? Well, there's nothing like it if it's preached properly, which ends up being more biblical, I think, than often the keepers of the Bible have led us to believe. Yeah
2: helpful
0: how has your uh, kind of within the how would you contrast sort of the if there is a contrast, you mentioned the evangelical you know sort of the general perspective that would that you see in evangelicalism today? How has the Anabaptist tradition sort of informed not only your understanding and, and preaching of the gospel, but how does it differ or even contrast if, if it does from sort of the more mainline kind of evangelical
1: message? Hmm, yeah, no, great question. Um, it certainly is more social, and what's interesting is, I say that my a little antenna, my uh, evangelical antenna, go off and say, "Ah, social gospel—that's that thing that's not the true gospel, right?" <laughs> but I, we used we used to use the term "social gospel" to mean the false gospel that's only about social justice and never does get around to talking about Jesus. Um, and, and whatever you believe about that, I'm I, that scared us away from looking at the social dynamics of the true gospel of Jesus. Which is radically social, it's radically relational in its implications, not just in our individual relationship with God, but with one another and how we're going to do life together on this planet starting now. Uh, and that's something that has really been reintroduced to me through Anabaptist theology the usness of it all, not just me and my personal quiet time with God, but the community hermeneutic, the gathering together around scripture, the doing life together being. Of utmost value because it, when it comes to church, uh, when we don't just sit facing one direction listening to the paid professional holy man teach us from the front, but when we actually turn the chairs to face one another and we engage in each other's lives, that's when we're really living out this New Testament ideal of church and and when we're we're kind of conspiring together how we're going to bless our community, how we're going to move into this neighborhood together to be salt and to be light. and there's something there's something about that that Anabaptism uh, it it's not the, they're not the only one to, who champion this but they they stress this in a ways in a way that really helped me kind of catch fire to that perspective um, I can mention a couple other things uh, when it comes to even how we think of the gospel one one distinctive that may sound small but when you make you, a matter of emphasis. Just a few degrees on a dial can uh, can send you off in very different directions over time. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Protestant Reformation emphasized understanding the gospel as justification primarily. A justification by faith alone became kind of a rallying concept of understanding the gospel. And certainly Anabaptists did not deny that, but they put the emphasis not on justification but on regeneration Justification is declaring someone not guilty, but we kind of all whisper under our breath, we still know the guy's guilty, but we're all going to pretend he isn't because the judge said to think of him, not guilty. So it's the declaration you're not guilty. And Anabaptist said, hey, that's true, but regeneration is the greater understanding that he actually doesn't just declare us not guilty, he makes us not guilty, he remakes us new. And the prophecy in both Jeremiah and Ezekiel is that when the new covenant came, that God would give us a new heart, take out our heart of stone, give us a heart of flesh, he'd give us a new spirit, and then he'd put his own spirit in us to continue to guide us and help us grow. So we still experience a sense of fracture and discontinuity and we sin, but now our understanding is that's not just my bad half versus my good half, that's the flesh, which is, it's piggybacking on my life like a leech right now, but the true me is remade and is new. And I'm going to live into that identity of every day becoming more of myself.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. No, I appreciate that. So part of what I think you kind of just, you started almost getting into. So part of tied in with that gospel message of good news, kind of in our tradition growing up, and I think for many, was ultimately this kind of at the bottom line, Jesus died for my sins so that, you know, Jesus died for your sins so that you can have new life or, you know, put it maybe a bit more... Crassly, so you can you know avoid hell when when you die, and there was you know the the atonement piece or this idea of the cross and Jesus's death and, and resurrection, of course, is an integral piece of what the gospel message was. And then, kind of as I've, and I'm sure for many of our listeners, have kind of worked through paths of deconstruction, reconstruction, or kind of rethinking. You go, oh, so you know the the my sort of traditional way of understanding. The death of Jesus, which basically has a lot of different, you know, a lot of different facets, and there are these things called theories of atonement, and they're actually different ways to look at what the death of Jesus ultimately meant. And rather than just hey, Jesus died for your sins so that you can go to heaven when you die, there's there's way more to the story, even. Uh, even with what what the death of Jesus and what the cross ultimately tells us or informs us about who God is and what God is like. Mm -hmm. Um, In kind of transitioning to that atonement conversation, um, and this idea of, you know, theories of atonement, can you give our, our, listeners maybe even a little bit of a overview, maybe even branching off of what you just spoke of in terms of the reformation and kind of what sort of the general, this idea of a theory of atonement even is, and why these kind of questions are, are significant and these perspectives are important.
1: Yeah, this is really important. Thanks for raising the issue. Um, Atonement, referring to kind of what Jesus accomplished on the cross to bring us together with God, is literally a made-up English word uh, that that was a, made to to translate a couple of different both Hebrew and Greek words, um, and the, the the word atonement isn't just by coincidence found within the word atonement. The mm-hmm. word at- the, the word atonement was created because it says at one meant and it's a, so it's a made-up English word to try and capture a biblical concept that there is something that brings us together at one with God, and Jesus accomplished it on the cross. Now, that's a fact. The Bible states that in a number of different ways. But what the Bible doesn't necessarily get into great detail on are the mechanics of how Jesus brought that about. But there's enough, there's just enough detail for us to argue about it. <laughs> and, to, you know, there's just enough detail for us to divide into different camps and create different theories and then say the other, the people who disagree with us are heretics. Um, but here, let's look at one passage, and this is typical of how the Bible might cover the issue. The Apostle Paul says is well-known... For those raised in the church in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, uh, Now, brothers and sisters, I-, I want to remind you of the gospel I preach to you. I love that. He, he thinks that it's important to always remind one another of the gospel. So there is this theme of the ministry of reminding in the New Testament that mm-hmm. we should always come back to the basics, basics of the gospel. And when we're starting to get off course, it's not like we, we need a different message. We just need to be reminded of the pure and simple message of the gospel. So he says, I need to remind you of the gospel I preached to you in which you received and upon which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word that I preached to you. Otherwise, you've "...believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you of first importance," and here it is, "...that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to a whole bunch of people." Okay, so Jesus died for our sins. That's the level of detail Paul gets into here. Uh, people, un- people understood that sin was the thing that separated us from God. Uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, there's different places that say this in the Old Testament. Sin separates us from God. So Jesus did something to take away that separation. Oh, there's atonement, atonement. He died for our sins, got rid of our sins. The way the, the John the Baptist said when he pointed to Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's, it's, he's taking away the thing that is blocking or ruining or corroding our relationship with God and with one another. And so that's really good news. And that's the atonement. And somehow the cross accomplished that. That enough can be the gospel and we can celebrate it. That's the atonement as fact. There are different images, atonement images in the Bible, the Passover lamb, the sacrificial lamb, a new covenant lamb, uh, Jesus as the one who pays the price as our ransom or who takes away our sin as a healer. Uh, or who is the conquering king, or who is the mercy seat, the hilasterion in Romans chapter 3, who's the place where we find mercy. So these are different images. All all of them offer some creative, imaginative ways of thinking about the beauty of the atonement. But what has happened over time is the church has been, um, well, less than fully content to just celebrate this and has said, we have to figure out what these different images are pointing to and decide on the mechanics of how it works. So you've got atonement fact and you've got atonement images, but the church is focused on atonement theories, mm. theories about how all of that data fits together. And I think I think that kind of theology can be really helpful if we think of it as ways of kind of stretching our mind, and it always leads to increased um, appreciation for the fact of the atonement. But when we start to rally around our one particular preferential theory, I mean, we're all gonna find a favorite, that's fine. But when we do so in a way that then makes a mockery of and condemns those who prefer a different theory, um, well, now we're we're creating needless reasons for division in the body of Christ. And that ironically is anti-gospel. The gospel is supposed to unite us together. So there's a number of those theories, and I can I can mention them, but uh, the important sure. thing is is that it's great to learn these theories, allow them to help us appreciate the atonement better, but don't use them as a reason to divide. So. Um, so Jesus mentioned, as an Anabaptist, I'm going to start and end with Jesus all the time. So he mentions through only three things that he uh, are ways that he understood his own atonement. Healing, ransom, and new covenant. Healing in John 3, he talked about the bronze serpent upon a snake when talking to Nicodemus. Said he, his death is going to be like that. When you look to Jesus, just like when the Israelites look to the bronze serpent, you'll be healed of what's killing you. Um, so that that's its beautiful image when Jesus is lifted up. He's going to provide a kind mm. of healing of what is tearing humanity apart. Um, in Mark ten forty five, he talks about being a ransom. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's a great example of Jesus using an image that points to freedom. Everyone would understand a ransom is money paid to obtain freedom. Jesus is going to bring freedom. That's the point of the image. But the early church said, hmm, a ransom. Who was the ransom paid to? How much was the ransom? Yeah. And how did that so, you know, they came up with a theory that Jesus paid the ransom to the devil because the devil's the one that held all of humanity in prison, so he, he swapped his life for ours, and then the devil let us free. But the devil never counted on the resurrection, and so on the third day when Jesus rose from the dead, the devil lost his ransom, and and he had already given up all of humanity, and so it was a just giant prank played on the devil, and that played well for a few hundred years, and then the church repented of that and said, we're giving the devil too much credit here. <laughs> um, this is we're we're going into detail the Bible doesn't say so. But then they just switched theories and said it's a ransom paid to God. God the Father is the one who ha- had our will in bondage, but Jesus paid paid the price back to God the Father and and in the end I don't if Jesus wanted to say either of those he could have said it. But he just said my life's a ransom as an image that suggests, hey, when you think of me, think freedom, baby. This is freedom. That's yeah. what that's what I'm updating for you. But theology has a way of going too far sometimes. Uh, the other thing that Jesus said was the new covenant. He, he says at the Last Supper, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And this one gets really underrepresented when we talk about atonement sometimes. So Jesus saw himself as as shedding blood that was a way of cutting a new covenant. The way you cut a covenant within religious circles at those times is you killed an animal and you tore it apart. You walked between the pieces. You you establish a new covenant in blood and Jesus is says, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is a new way of relating. It ties in with the kingdom, something new and fresh, a new way of being spiritual is starting right now. And I'm going to usher that in, in a way that you understand by cutting a covenant. Um, And so the atonement is, is all of these things, but we over time have, um, have added to it. So some other theories that came up. Over time, was at the time of the Protestant Reformation, was this thing called penal substitutionary atonement, uh, which, which is the theory that the way Jesus saved us from the wrath of God is that He took God's wrath upon Himself. This was not a primary emphasis in the teaching of the church. Until Calvin, I'm not saying that it was never alluded to. There's always someone who can find one quote of this church father or that <laughs> early theologian, uh, but it really was not co- a common way of talking about uh, the atonement. And uh, and then uh, Calvin popularized it, and and so it, it made it, it allowed people to look at the cross of Christ. And when you saw his suffering, I think it worked really well. Uh, as far as uh, an image that could that could sell that could travel well it had emotional impact because when you looked at the suffering of Jesus you could say oh that's that's god pouring out his wrath onto jesus the wrath i'm afraid of that when i die i might go to hell no no i, I can i can live free and happy because i can i can visualize all that wrath being poured out of jesus especially when the protestants were protesting the catholics who were selling indulgences who were talking about people's loved ones still suffering in uh, some form of purgatory and that you might too if someone is not either praying for your soul or paying an indulgence for you or you're not topping Mm -hmm. up your your forgiveness with um, keeping current with the sacraments you might suffer when you die as well even if eventually you'll make it into heaven there's so much fear of God's wrath and suffering for Protestants to be able to say, no, when you think of the cross, imagine all the suffering that you're afraid of, and you're afraid of even for your relatives who have already died and gone on. All of that suffering, imagine it being poured out on Jesus. That's where it went, not onto you. Mm. It had real emotional impact, and I think it caught on very quickly. It preaches easily, and um, and it gives an answer to the question, where did God's wrath go? Oh, I see. It went poured out on Jesus. Uh, and And so it really caught on. And now generations after generations since the Protestant Reformation of Christians have grown up not understanding this is one theory that tries to put the biblical data points together about what happened on the cross. It's not just one theory. It's the gospel. This is what the gospel Mm -hmm. is. That's all they've known. And I think it's it's good and it's right and it's biblical to help people say, no, no, that's not the gospel. That Jesus saves, that Jesus calls you into a new way of living— the atonement is the gospel but no one particular theory about the mechanics about how the atonement works mm, thank you for painting that picture Stephen. go ahead uh, thanks for letting me walk you through my first year introduction to atonement theology class if i can
2: transfer some credit in credited somewhere here yeah <laughs> I'm interested in, in hearing you actually kind of explore a little bit more the ways in which our preoccupation with mechanics yes. gets in the way of us actually living in light of the reality that the gospel is supposed to be announcing.
1: Mm-hmm. This This kind of detailed theology that goes beyond what is written. Um, that says there's a verse that talks about Jesus being a ransom. Let's take our time to come up with theories about who the ransom was paid to, how much blood amounted to be the ransom, did it include his body or only his blood, and how did those effects happen to Satan or to God. When we take the time to go so far beyond what is written and then use the different theories as excuses to divide the church, all of that comes from a place of privilege, of people who have too much time on their hands. Mm. Who, Come on, man. Who, all right, who are it grows out of a western european tradition of the church when the church is in power, when it is the oppressor, not the oppressed, it comes up with detailed theology because it that's what privileged people do. They sit around and talk and they try and make things that are not of ultimate importance sound like they're of ultimate importance so they can feel really important about how they're spending their time. And this is one of the beautiful correctives that I found in the Anabaptist tradition. The Anabaptists never had that season of safety, of security. You know, Protestants, yes, were originally persecuted by the Catholics, but it caught on so quick quickly that they, you know, Luther won the favor of certain German princes, and then boom, they had safety, security, their own seminaries, their own police forces, they had the printing press to get the word out there, and so Protestantism from its first generation was very academic and very theologically invested in these Heady conversations from the start. Anabaptists never had that privilege. Anabaptists were always on the run because they were pacifists and believed in the peace teachings of Jesus. Absolutely, they wouldn't fight back. So all they had at their disposal was to run. There was never the Anabaptist country like their like Lutherans had Germany. So they met in caves, they met in homes, in barns, in the woods, and and so what they did is they read scripture always with an eye for how can we follow Jesus better. How can we live out the Sermon on the Mount better? How can we allow the gospel to shape how we love each other better? Because we haven't got time to discuss much else. But there's something beautiful about that almost forced simplicity that I think the church needs today to say, yeah, actually, let's have a conversation about how we can manifest the unifying beauty of the gospel together as a diverse church and not allow conversations about the beauty of the atonement to be just one more thing that divides us.
2: What, what about the different pictures of God that can kind of be, I don't know, extrapolated from from these different theories? I think especially with in, in traditions where the penal substitution theory basically mm-hmm. is atonement. Right. Uh, of right. course I'm going back to like those 30 people that were that that you know we were thinking of. Mm-hmm. I mean their, their response is well I mean gosh like how if Jesus can say love your enemy, why can't God figure
1: that out? <laughs> yeah. Like, it, it, yeah. No, right on, right on. Um the the downside I mentioned the upside of penal substitutionary atonement is that it it captured the imagination of early generations of Protestants. Who were primarily afraid of God's wrath? Coming out of Catholicism, avoiding God's wrath was the only thing they cared about. The emphasis of God's love was not dominant, but His holiness and justice that will cause you great pain when you die. Uh, even for Christians, if you're not topped up with grace from the church, this this fear of God preached really well. When you could just breathe a sigh of relief and say ah, this angry, angry, punishing God, I see him punishing Jesus instead of me. But over time, uh, yes, perhaps someone could say, well, you, you've lost the fear of God and that's a bad thing. But I think over time, we actually started to listen to the other aspects of the atonement and the gospel message, which is that God is love, that God actually values us, that we are made in his image and his likeness. I mean, when you preach Luke 15, which is the three lost stories, the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. Some we used to preach that as you're lost, you are without hope, and under God's wrath, unless you repent, you are a worm, as Luther might say. Or Luther might say, You are dung, but through the blood of Christ you can become like snow covered dung. And, <laughs> and and so when great God looks yes, very Canadian. Yeah, you're right, yes. So you can so when God looks at you, you're still filthy, but thanks to the blood of Christ, he sees you. We kind of tricked God into seeing you as pure. So just be grateful, you worm. But over time we started to realize, hold on a second, looking at just the example of Luke 15, the lost coin, the lost sheep and the lost son. One of the three the things that these three things have in common is not just that they're lost, but that all three things that are lost are also valuable to the one who has lost them. This is also true. So the coin is being sought after. It's not the story of the lost piece of poo, That some woman hates and wants to get out of her house. It's the story of the lost coin which is valuable to her and so she is Mm -hmm. looking everywhere for it. The one sheep who wanders away is not just the black sheep that the shepherd hates but he's so wonderful he'll go get anyway. It's valuable and then of course the story of the lost son. This is a precious son who it's the only story where the one who's lost it doesn't go and get it because now you have freedom of the human will involved but he is certainly ready watching on the horizon for his son to come home, runs to meet him and and uh, throws him a party. So there's great value in being an image bearer of God. And now that we've caught on to that, which is really part of the gospel, we say, oh, wait a second. So when I look at Jesus and I see God just pouring out his wrath on him, I've been learning that God is love, that God is grace. That doesn't quite sit well with me. So that an atonement theory that preached well uh, a few hundred years ago for now a new generation is starting to raise some suspicions. And I would say rightly so because it's an atonement theory. It's not atonement fact. And what it can leave people with is the image of a God who finds it impossible to simply forgive. He has to punish someone in order to do that. And rather than just say, oh, phew, it's not me he punishes, so I'm good, it raises the question of, if this father says, I want to bring you into my family, but first I have to beat up my son to do it, Mm. then you can now be my child. It raises the question of, is that the family I want to be a part of? (laughs) I don't know. And I think rightly so. Um, and, And so this is not about going beyond what's old fashioned. It's actually the story of a new generation of people, I think, becoming more biblical. We're asking questions we should ask because the theory was never properly biblical to begin with.
0: Mm. Uh, that's awesome. So I, I could ask forty questions on that. We'll have to do a five-part series here. But um, <laughs> so the thing about—and you've said this now a couple times—but um, the thing about that—that that model, um, call it PSA or just that uh, sort of that kind of understanding of God. It does mm-hmm. preach very well, particularly in yeah. like youth youth conferences and stuff mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but but know what I found genuinely in my own experience and experience of others, even if that let's say that that was in fact let's say we that became an atonement fact that actually God did need to beat someone up and it was jesus and that that this idea of that we should be like so grateful for that mm-hmm. is just. And that, that should, like, we try to muster people around, like, and so aren't you just grateful? Don't you just want to love him? Don't you just want to, like, mm. don't you feel motivated to share that good news? And I, I'm just totally like, this is what happens when we're 54 minutes in a podcast. Honestly, I'm like, that is just totally uninspiring to me. I mean, mm. that does not, I, and if I have to muster up some sort of inspiration or excitement or passion for God because just think, just really picture Jesus and the pain. And like, that was what God wanted to do to you. Like, aren't you grateful? I'm kind of like, it's falling Mm -hmm. flat on me, man. It's just, it just, I have no experience of that in my life. I, I, that, that doesn't Mm -hmm. speak anything into my here and now. And like, into like, I just don't, I don't feel like I did anything to deserve that necessarily, that brutality. Like I don't, so it doesn't (laughs) really ring true. That also, that was my soapbox going back to evangelism, so obviously that you know the good news and going out, you know the Great Commission in our tradition was like it was the it was the be all end all like that was what unfortunately a little too much boiled down to that forgot <laughs> Matthew twenty two to start with but yeah Matthew twenty eight um, and certainly the you know evangelizing the world and it's really important and frankly I'm grateful I think a lot of what you've even framed recently in a number of series that you're doing at the meeting house has. Talked about evangelism, and in fact, I was listening to the first uh, one of the first uh, sermons you gave in a recent series, and you had you were asking folks in your congregation actually like sit down with non-believers or even other believers Mm -hmm. and just share what it is that they've they've learned. And hey, I'm like, hey, personal Bible studies. That's we that was what we did, you know, all day, every day. (laughs) I'm going, I'm going off. But what I would, my question is. reframing the atonement theory kind of beyond just you're really guilty. And so that preaches pretty easily, but giving folks a, a more broad story of the good news of Jesus. How does that kind of message of the kingdom, the love of the father, as you just described um, kind of, how does that then lead into evangelism even practically? Like what does, how does that shift what evangelism looks
1: like? Mm, yeah. Wonderful. question. So, tying it back into what we talked about earlier, for me, then, evangelism becomes an invitation to come and join a, a, a global movement that I have discovered and that is giving me a better way to live. Uh, now, at this point, it could sound like I'm multi-level marketing dietary supplements. but <laughs> <laughs> Enter a promo code, Bruxy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Right. But, but uh, that is a beginning way of understanding the kingdom that needs a focal point, and a talk about Jesus. So I'm inviting you to come and join something, rather than just telling you, you ha- it's between you and God right now. And so I'm isolating my audience into an audience of one, not God, but the person I'm talking to. And I'm saying, you, in an isolated fashion, right now, this could be your moment of decision. Mm. And so we used to do that with altar calls. Even if there were a thousand people at church, we'd be saying, now, this is between you, every eye closed and every head bowed. Well, between you and God, you make this decision because this is about you and your eternal salvation. And we're, we're, cre- we're preaching only the isolating aspects of, of the gospel in a way that creates a crisis and creates a dilemma. It's masterful marketing. But rather, I think the gospel—if we start where Jesus started—is the invitation to come and join a kingdom, and and to come be a part of a uh, of a movement that is changing how we live. And then from there, we begin to talk about the specifics of who Jesus is. Let me ask you a question: If I say the word sin, <clears throat> what from your church background would you say is the definition?
0: Missing the mark was what we always and we'd always yeah. we'd always yeah. bring up the. Uh, the, the what is it, archery term, yes, right, Stephen?
2: so good. Yeah, that, that there is that an ideal you and, and, and we missed it.
1: Yeah, that's very good. And you're 90% right, but the 10% you're missing <laughs> is crucial. <laughs> so <laughs> the Greek word hamartia, and most Christians would say the same thing, and they might even remember the Greek word, I think, was hamartia or something like it, and it is, and it was used in archery to mean you missed the bullseye. But its etymology, it comes from two words. Ha is a negation word. It means not And uh, hamartia, meros, means to be together or to be in union. And so at the etymology of hamartia is to be not together or to be fractured or pulled apart. And then this word that means separation started to be used in archery to mean that the arrow is separated from where it belongs, which is in the bullseye. And, And so sin at its root is understood biblically as a corrosive force that separates relationships. And when we Mm -hmm. talk about it at its very root biblical way, I think people get it. Uh, to say—I mean, to admit to my friends no, theres just something wrong. Just look around you. You know something's wrong. We don't know what to call it, but something's wrong. And it seems to be a force that's pulling us apart rather than packing us closer together. It's constantly isolating us from one another. And and every tool we have at our hand that could be a unifying tool, like what, well, like social media, like our phones, like other things that could increase a beautiful communication, is actually pulling us further apart and creating increased tribalism within our tribes. And. And so there's something wrong with everything, and we want to admit this and find a way to push back against it with the help of a God who is love, and we think Jesus is at the center of that enterprise.
2: Mm. That makes that, that that's really helpful. I like that. I, actually, I haven't heard that uh, that explanation from the etymology. Etymology, yeah. not, not the
1: same.
0: Yeah. No, that's, right. <laughs> that's yeah. good. Yeah. Chapter I think, eight in my book. There you go. There you go. Yeah. The last thing was on the evangelism piece. You know, I think even if you have sort of, we've used this language of kind of salesmanship, you use the language of marketing. I think there was, you know, uh, you know, Paul talks about having this sort of uh, the apostle Paul has, you know, this sort of obligation to share. There's this, uh, something about the message that kind of, just pull, you know, pulls him towards. He just has to speak up, and you know, in my tradition and background, so much of, again, trying to create that sense of like urgency. I want to share this message, and I know I should. And but, but, and a lot of when we heard the language of evangelism, it was even around like cold contact, you you know, we talked about this a little bit even before we started mm-hmm. recording, like mm-hmm. college campuses, knocking on doors at, at dormitories, yeah. like getting yeah. people into personal Bible studies, hyper, you know, individualistic, so these people can kind of come to Christ and become disciples or language we wouldn't have used, you know, get saved. Um, Mm -hmm. How do you, how how do you, I would imagine in your church that you have experienced, you know, people come out of, you know, that sort of background. Um, How do you kind of correct or sort of guide an understanding of evangelism beyond pure salesmanship and sort of bringing people to Mm -hmm. decisions to become, you know, get converted to become Christians versus an alternative? How do you guide
1: that? I, what I what I challenge uh, folks to understand, I think, at our church at the meeting house is that if you are systematically avoiding talking about your faith, then you're not being a genuine person. So there's that extreme. Um, if you belong to a bowling league and bowling was your life and you loved bowling and every Sunday you were bowling and you had midweek bowling practices and bowling was where you travel to bowling conferences and read bowling books and listen to bowling podcasts, but your closest comrades at work or at school had no idea that you bowled, then I would want to say you need therapy. There's something going on in your mind. Maybe it's from childhood trauma to do with bowling balls. I don't know what it is, but you are somehow systematically and skillfully being disingenuous to the people who are closest to you in your mm. life. What's the issue with you and bowling that you love it so much and are, and are so ashamed of it? So I would just <laughs> say if, if Jesus and just things you're, you're learning this week— from him, and or just the fun you had at church on Sunday. You should have a lot of fun and a lot of joy and learn new things. If that's not what slips out of your mouth on a Monday morning when people say, "Hey, what was how was your weekend?" and that's not just part of it. I'm not saying you have to be a broken record and it's all you talk about. But on the other hand, if it's something you never talk about, it's worth just asking the question: uh, Who hurt you when you were little that you had to had to compartmentalize your faith so strongly? And it's a good question because many of us have been damaged. By a kind of authoritarian guilt, guilt-driven um, evangelistic mandate that kind of just beat, beat any passion and delight and simple joy in just talking about what we believe with both our Christian and non-Christian friends. That just got beat out of us. And so some of us, it actually just is going through a season of rediscovering that joy and. And then saying, I can talk about Jesus as a natural, delightful aspect of who I am. And uh, and if someone it makes someone uncomfortable and they're awkward, okay, I take note of that. I don't have to bring it up again. But it, it should be a natural outflow of what I believe is supernatural I- about me.
2: Great. Awesome. Bruxy, thanks so much for spending time with us here this evening. I, uh, I've really enjoyed the conversation. I think... Uh, I think our listeners will enjoy it. Uh, If we wanted to point them in the direction of where they could get more of your stuff, where do do they go?
1: You can go to two places. If you can remember my weird name, which is Bruxy, B-R-U-X-Y, then you've got my web address, Bruxy.com. And there's information about me, my books, and my blog is there at Bruxy.com. All of our Sunday teaching from our church, The Meeting House, is at TheMeetingHouse.com. TheMeetingHouse.com.
0: Awesome. Well, will definitely highly recommend folks check out check all of those resources out, particularly your latest book, uh, Reunion, which I think is blessing a number of folks, and uh, just we're excited to, uh, to share with others and point people in your direction. So Bruxy, hopefully we can do this again, man. I know, uh, that we covered a bunch of topics and maybe we can go super, super deep somewhere in a, in a follow-up, but, uh, we appreciate the time and just thank you for everything you're doing in, in Canada and, uh, beyond. (laughs) Are you ever in the States anytime, anytime soon or in the Southeast?
1: Uh, Occasionally. Yeah. I'm invited to, uh, to head down Pennsylvania way and a few other places to speak. I'm going to be down in another month or two um yeah i love the chances i get to hang out with with uh you exotic international types (laughs) and listen i love Stephen and andrew i love what you're doing with this podcast Uh, thanks thanks for letting me hang out with you you got a good thing going on here
2: i appreciate that thanks for the time
1: with
0: us yeah thanks for the encouragement and spending time